I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be working from verse 16 to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and working through the end of the chapter. Quick quiz for you. Oh, we're going to let the children be dismissed too. I had the privilege of sitting beside my wife in worship today, by the way. You're wondering who that beautiful young lady is? That is my wife. Quick question as we begin. As you think about the Old Testament, what would you say is the most important building in the Old Testament? What is the most important building structure in the Old Testament? Okay, Solomon's Temple. And what was the precursor to Solomon's Temple, which also was a building that had high importance? Okay, the tabernacle, which wasn't a building, Jake. It was a tent. Okay? So, Old Testament, you have the tabernacle. When you look into the book of Revelation, particularly the last two chapters, and you find a description about heaven, what is the preeminent structure in heaven? What is it called? John says, and I saw the coming down. Okay, the New Jerusalem. What, what is it about both the New Jerusalem and the Old Testament temple that gives them their prominence and uniqueness in terms of the people of God? What is what, is what makes them prominent? New Jerusalem, temple, tabernacle in the Old Testament. Okay, Mike, you said it, but you didn't say it out loud. Okay, it's God's presence. It is the place... In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, at the end, in the kingdom, where God manifests His presence. Okay? Now, in the Old Testament, we know that the building that was built by Solomon is called the temple. Let me just read for you a bit of a description of what's going on at that time with this building where God manifests His presence. Verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 5 says, When all the work which Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished... He brought in the things that his father David had dedicated. The silver, the gold, and all the furnishings. He placed them in the treasuries of the temple of God. When you come to verses 13 through 14, it says this. The trumpeters and the singers joined in unison. This this temple is now completed. It is glorious, a gold-covered building to manifest the glory of God because God is going to manifest His presence there, trumpeters and singers join in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to Jehovah. They are accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. They raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord that has just been built was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service there because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That is to say, God manifested His personal presence, not in its entirety, but at a level manifested His personal presence in the context of the people of Israel. When you go to chapter 6 and verse 18, Solomon asks this question, but will God really dwell on earth with men? He is astonished 
by the coming of God to the temple to so gloriously manifest his presence. Solomon's response, can God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. What is Solomon saying? I am humbled that God would bless this building which is central to the nation of Israel with his holy and glorious presence. As you flip over the page into the next chapter, he says this, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What does that mean? The presence of God manifested itself in the midst of his people. And for everyone observing, it was glorious. So strong was it that the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord. Why? Because the temple was the place where God had chosen to manifest himself to a people called the nation of Israel and it was through that people group that God wanted the gospel of Jesus ultimately to go out to the world around us. Through Israel comes a Savior. That Savior births a new building of God. That's the building in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you look there with me. That is the building that is spoken about in the last part of verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Okay? Now, when he picks up that theme again down in verse 16, I want you to listen to how this is said. And just for the sake of context, temple... In the Old Testament is the place where God manifests his personal presence. That is a clear connection, if you will, between this passage in the New Testament and the Old Testament. So when Paul brings up the word temple, the God-fearing Jews that Paul is speaking to in Corinth know exactly what he's talking about. A place where God's presence was so clearly manifested that it affected the observers. Then Paul makes this fascinating statement here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. And he asked it in the form of, if you will, a rhetorical question. That is, a question that's asked that, that demands an affirmative answer. So he's not really asking them to sit down and think about this. What he's doing is stating the obvious, but stating in the form of a question. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And you just keep that phrase, that phrase God's temple. And that God's Spirit lives in you, which would be a clear connection or correlation to that passage with Solomon and the temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Serious words. Four, God's temple is sacred. Now listen to this next phrase. And you are that temple. Now, Anyone who has the picture of the astonishing temple from the Old Testament is going to be amazed that the Apostle Paul can look at the church in Corinth, which is fraught with all kinds of difficulty, divisions, schisms, struggles, sin. Paul looks at them and he says, you are God's temple. You are the place where God desires to manifest his personal presence on earth for the nations. Folks, that is a truth that is an analogy that is sobering for every Christian. We are, when we gather corporately, God's temple. I want you to flip ahead. In most of your Bibles, it'll be one page to chapter 6 and verse 19. 
chapter 6 and verse 19. We see Paul clearly saying in chapter 3 that the church corporately is the building or temple of God. In verse 19 of chapter 6, he says this. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost? Fascinating, isn't it? So what the church is corporately a manifestation of God's presence, the church, every believer individually is also a manifestation of God's presence to the world around us. God mysteriously and in a glorious way that is incomprehensible and humbling takes up personal residence. Let this sink in. Personal presence personal manifestation in the life and the picture that he has to use is the word body of every believer and when we gather together Matthew says where two or three are gathered where is God he is in the midst and when you are alone before God where is he he is in the midst so there is this individual and corporate reflection of God's presence in the world that is called the church. Here's what amazes me. A church as dysfunctional as Corinth was the temple of God. And you're going to see as we work through this book that there were numerous issues that they had to address to clean up the temple, to clarify the witness that God's presence was seeking to bring to Corinth so that they would be changed. And this morning, we need to get a grip on what it means for us to be the temple of God as the church not proud of that but humbled by that awestruck by the responsibility that we as individual and individuals and as a church corporately have to represent Jesus Christ to the world that we have been called to live in the question I want to ask this morning is this how do we cultivate a unity how do we eliminate division in God's house how do we promote the church is the temple of God in a way that will clearly manifest God to the world that he has called us to live in. And I don't want to argue that we'll do that when we remember a few very simple basic truths that emerge out of this text. Number one is this. We will represent God well as his dwelling place when we remember the incredible privilege that every believer is God's or I'm sorry, the incredible privilege of every believer is God's indwelling presence. Okay? We will manifest God well when we remember that the incredible privilege of every Christian is that you are God's temple. And that when we gather together corporately, we manifest only in a more powerful way, collectively, the presence and glory of God. Now, how does this happen? Look at verse 16, if you will. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that? And this is how we become God's temple. God's spirit lives in you without any exclusions. Every believer in this context, Paul understands to have the personal and dwelling presence of the spirit of God. So let me just list for you just a couple of thoughts that flow out of this, what this means for every Christian. For every believer, the Holy Spirit who takes up residence is God's personal indwelling presence. I'm going to turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn there with me, you can do that real quickly. Ephesians 2 and verse 19. You find a passage that talks about this a little bit more fully. <clears throat> Ephesians 2 and verse 19. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building, and here's the analogy, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. Okay, do you see the connection? That God takes up his personal presence in every believer so that we become a temple of God. He is God's, the Spirit, is God's personal presence for every believer. Jesus said to his disciples, it is to your benefit that I go away. Because when I go away, I will send to you another, what? Comforter who will be in you. Okay? The disciples, when they were in physical proximity to Christ, had the blessing of his presence. But when Jesus said he was leaving, what did they do? They started to panic. Why? They loved the personal presence of God in their life. But they weren't with Jesus all the time. There were times that Jesus went off to pray. And they weren't with him. Now Jesus is saying this, it is to your benefit that I go away. And his promise in John 14 is this, I will not leave you as orphans. When I go away, it doesn't mean you will be without me. But instead, I will send my personal presence to you through the person of the Holy Spirit. So how is it that God comes? Through his spirit, he comes and takes up his personal presence in the life of every believer. We can have with God immediate fellowship. In other words, I don't have to go to the temple or to the tabernacle to meet with God, as they did in the Old Testament. The place where he would manifest his presence. Every believer has a mediator through Jesus Christ and has immediate access to God. That's why I am not personally a Roman Catholic priest. Because I believe that as a Christian, you have, according to the word of God, immediate access into his glorious presence. So the Spirit of God, the blessing, is first God's personal presence. Secondly, it is he is God's confirming presence. Say, Tim, what do you mean by that? He assures believers of their personal relationship with the Father. Romans 8.16 puts it in this way. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. What does the Spirit of God do for a child of God? He continues to whisper into their life, you are mine. The privilege of the indwelling Spirit is that he speaks to us about the presence of God in our lives. He confirms us in Christ as Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to turn there real quickly. Ephesians 1 and verses 13 and 14. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14. It says, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Listen to this next phrase. Having believed. Okay? Who has the Spirit? Everyone who has trusted in the shed blood of Christ as their portion for salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal that is a mark that identified ownership. Okay, if you work in the corporate realm, you'll notice that many corporations today have taken to putting identifying seals or labels on their equipment. Why? Because equipment has a tendency to walk. People tend to want it to become theirs. And so companies put a seal, a label on there that says, this is property of, with an identifying number. Okay, God for every Christian gives his Holy Spirit indwelling 
personal presence as a seal or as a sign that we belong to him. He is a mark that we are God's property. And somehow God in his grace seals us with the promised Holy Spirit. And then he says he is this. He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the Spirit of God comes, God's personal presence, and he comes as God's confirming presence. He speaks into our lives that we indeed belong to him. The idea of this deposit is similar to down payment on a car or an engagement ring. Okay, when someone gives an engagement ring to someone, what are they saying? I want to spend, it's fascinating to me. Because in giving the engagement ring, I was saying to my wife, ultimately what I would repeat on the day of our wedding, wasn't I? It was a precursor to the wedding day, to the ceremony. And so it is for every child of God's. What we get from God is a ring. The Holy Spirit is that down payment, that earnest money. That earnest money, the presence of the Spirit of God in your life today is God's guarantee that one day you will spend eternity with Him. Okay, His presence is what makes us God's temple, God's dwelling place. And He seals us and He gives us an engagement ring, as it were, that guarantees one day I will come and take you to be with me forever. It is His confirming, assuring presence. The Holy Spirit is also God's powerful or enabling, effective presence. He makes it possible for us to be the temple of God in our community. You see, the temple that God is building through people is not dead and lifeless. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that we are, fascinating statement, we are living stones. Not living stones, okay? We are living stones. That what God is assembling is not an edifice, not a structure. It is not an, a building, it is an organism, it is, it is alive. It has a purpose. It has a function. And he indwells the church and he empowers the church according to Acts chapter 1, for instance. And verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my, what? Witnesses. Okay, he enables us to effective and powerful witness. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. To every believer is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He makes it possible for us to be effective in service to each other. And he also is God's personal presence to help us overcome our struggle with sin. I want to read for you from Galatians chapter 5 real quickly because I think it's so important that we understand this. The way we overcome sin in our lives and become the temple of God, pure and holy, is when we rest in the work of the Spirit of God's indwelling presence. So in Galatians 5 and verse 16, Paul says this, So I say, live by the Spirit. And you will no longer gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Live by the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, I think if you go down to verse 24, he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, meaning let's be sensitive to the inner promptings and guidings of the Spirit of God so that we can become effective believers who are pure and holy and useful to the work of God. He doesn't call us to purify ourselves. He sends His Spirit to purify us. And as a result, the Holy Spirit is God's changing and conforming presence. Romans 8 and verse 13 says it this way. It says, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. How do we find life-transforming victory? How do we become the temple of God? How do we overcome habitual sin? The secret is within you. Okay, the secret isn't a book that you go read. The secret is the indwelling presence of God in your life, who is making adjustments, who is tweaking, who is speaking into your life and asking you, keep in step with me, not there, here. And he is guiding and directing. So the Spirit of God is the incredible privilege of every believer. His indwelling presence. And as Paul writes this, I just imagine this. He writes to the church and he says, you are God's temple. And they think temple, glorious temple in Jerusalem, where God manifested his presence to Solomon. What Paul wants them to realize is that God now is manifesting his glorious presence in every believer. My friends, I want to give you this thought this morning. The thought that there is no effective Christian living apart from the Spirit of God. The incredible blessing that we have is that God takes up residence in our life. So the things that we look at and say, I can't defeat that. God looks at us and says, no, you can't. But in the power of my spirit, you can. Folks, do you think there is any wonder why if the spirit of God is his personal presence, his confirming presence, his enabling presence, and his conforming presence, if he is those things, is it any wonder that the doctrine in the church today, and probably for the last 30 years, that is most distorted and maligned, most fearful for churches, is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I mean, if Satan wanted to defeat the church and disable it as the temple of God where Jesus Christ had manifested, what would the best way be to do that? I would argue it is this, steal its power. Steal its power. Make the Holy Spirit like the weird uncle that no one wants to talk about. And has not Satan done that so effectively? It is typically with fear and trepidation that pastors and scholars enter into a discussion about the work of the Holy Spirit. Folks, he is God's personal presence. God's confirming presence. God's powerful, effective presence. And we must learn what it is to walk in Him if we are going to be effective in overcoming the persistent patterns of sin that pest our lives. We need to learn what it is to walk in the Spirit. And we will be more effective as the body of Christ when we acknowledge, when we remember the incredible privilege of every believer is God's indwelling presence. My next three thoughts are shorter. The second thing that we need to remember is this. The responsibility of every believer who is part of this bigger picture is to pursue personal holiness. The responsibility of every Christian is to passionately, regularly, persistently, consistently pursue holiness before God. And notice how Paul emphasizes this. Verse 17, he says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is, some translations say what? What's the word you have here? Holy, and New International Version says God's temple is sacred. Now, we use that word. That's an interesting word. We don't use it a lot today 
but you, you might say to someone, oh, don't, don't touch that tool, that's, that's sacred. All right? Don't mess with that stuff, that's, that's sacred. Don't go in the garage, that's sacred. Okay, what does it mean? That is set apart for his joy and use. It is his personal possession. God looks at the church and says this, you are mine. You are set aside from the world to be my unique instrument in the world. Okay, it means to be purified, to be chosen out of and set apart for a unique and distinct and powerful purpose. And Paul looks at the church, he says, you are God's temple. God's temple is holy. It is pure. It is unique. It is distinct. Now, how does that occur? I believe it occurs in two ways. In Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us that we receive something called positional holiness. Positional holiness. And say, Tim, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is this. When you trust in Jesus Christ, Paul said, I want to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes by faith through and in Jesus Christ. Now, what is Paul saying? What is Paul saying is this. Every believer who is indwelt by the Spirit of God has a position of holiness before God. When God looks at you, he sees you in light of the merit of Christ, his shed blood, which has been applied to your life in a way that cleanses and changes you. That's a position of holiness. What is Paul talking about here? God's temple is sacred, holy. You are that temple. I believe clearly at one sense, he's saying that the church is the temple of God, which has been set aside for a divine purpose and function. But I believe that when Paul says that to the church in Corinth, which is so filled with sin, he cannot help but imply that every Christian should not only be passionate about the position that we have in Jesus Christ through the work of Christ, but that every Christian should pursue a practical holiness. So as a Christian in Jesus, I have a position of holiness. What should I be pursuing in my life? Practical holiness. To be sure that I work out my salvation, Philippians 2, with fear and trembling. That the work that God has done that is eternal in consequence begins to become manifest in our life and in our church. Folks, please understand this. There is no holiness in the church. There is no holy church apart from holy people. And there is no holy church that is not passionate about practical pursuits of holiness. We need to be passionate about becoming God's glorious temple where we seek after holiness as a passion. And so I ask you this question. In your life, in your dealings with your mate, in your dealings with your kids, in what you watch with your eyes, and what you look at and view on your computer, are you careful about being holy? Is there anything that you ever have to shut down because it violates your desire sensitively to be holy before God? Is there a billboard that you ever avert your eyes from because you desire to be holy and you don't want to be defiled by such things. We as the church must be passionate. We must carefully seek after holiness. We must avoid and hate sin. And the thought that flows out of that for me is this. We never have sin in our lives that doesn't affect others. 
We never have sin in our lives that doesn't affect others. Why? Because we are so intricately brought together by the Spirit of God. We are so made to be His building that we in our lives affect each other. God wants us to be holy. The church is where He reveals Himself to the world through us as individuals and through us corporately. That statement then moves into the sobering warning of verse 17. My third thought is this. We need to remember God's sobering warning to those that make up the church. Every believer is confronted, if you will, by God in this text with something that should stop us in our tracks. When we think about life in the church and our relationship to one another within the context of the body of Christ, this is a text that should stop you dead in your tracks. If anyone destroys God's temple, which he is defined as the church, as the people of God, God will destroy him. For his temple is sacred. It is uniquely set apart as his. And you are that temple. To destroy here means to not... There, there are words in the Greek that talk about loosening something almost at a molecular level so that it is just obliterated. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here carries ideas like to corrupt, to damage, or to harm. To do harm to the body of Christ. Not to literally blow it to smithereens, but to weaken its potential, to weaken its effectiveness as God's manifest presence on earth. God's response to those that do that is what? God will destroy you. Hebrews 4.13 says, All things are naked and open before the eyes of Him with whom we must do business. I'm mindful as I think about this text. Destroy the temple of God. God will destroy you. I'm mindful of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. I'm mindful of Paul threatening, breathing threatenings and cursings against the church. Was responsible for the death of believers. When he is confronted by Christ, what does he hear? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No, that's not what he says. Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you doing damage to me? And I believe that the reason this text leans with such strength in terms of you destroy the temple of God, God will do damage to you. If you're a Christian, God is going to, Hebrews chapter 12, do damage to you in an effort to bring you back to repentance. That will be his goal in bringing his discipline. For Saul, it was the work of Jesus Christ to draw him to himself into the church personally. But when Jesus confronts Saul, he's confronting him over the damage that he's doing to the church because he takes it personally. Folks, just let this settle in. When I love the church, I am loving Christ because we are his body, his temple, where the place where he wants to manifest his glory and his work, his holiness to the world so that they will glorify God in the day of visitation. 
so that they will imply, come and repent and know Him, so that when He comes, it is a glorious day for them, not a day of destruction. We are His church. His church is holy. How do we destroy the church? Well, if you go back to verse 3 of chapter 3, we find that it's done through jealousy and division, divisive pride, bitterness, that drives out love and kills the purpose of the church. The church is also destroyed by weak teaching, man-centered teaching, by putting an emphasis on secular insight rather than on the enduring living truth of the Word of God. The church is also done damage by lax moral standards. In the context of the church in Corinth, sexual immorality. A misunderstanding of the holiness and sacredness and sanctity of marriage. Issues of modesty. These are things that nipped at the heels of the church in Corinth and made it ineffective and sought to bring it down. Paul writes this letter and in a little bit he's going to say, do you want me to come to you gently or do you want me to come with a rod? Okay, what is he? Why is he so worked up about it? Because if you destroy the church of God, God will do damage to you. Paul takes very seriously the work of the church that is holy, set apart, purchased by the blood of Christ. The opposite is also true. If you build and love the church, God will build and love you. You can walk with confidence, saying, you know what, I am committed to God's program in this age, the ministry and outworking of His local church. The last thought I want to leave you with this morning, just briefly, and it's, it comes out of the next paragraph, <clears throat> an observation, that the attitude that will build unity in God's temple and the attitude that protects unity in the church is humility. The attitude that builds the church, that protects its unity, is an attitude of humility. And I'll just point out how this comes out in two ways. Verses 18 through verse 20. Do not deceive yourselves. Okay, which is a warning. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. Say, Tim, what does that mean? Okay, here's what I believe it means. It means... We should, in our own minds, before God, become fools. What is, we should become learners. People who come to God and to His Word saying, God, please teach me because I am engaged in serious business in your church. And if I come thinking, I've got it all together, I understand it all. God is saying, become a fool in your own estimation. Render yourself a fool. Meaning someone who comes saying, I, I need help with this. Okay? I had a problem with my car. I called Dave Rader the other day and explained issues with my car. It's pretty simple, but I don't get it. What do I say? Well, I call. Well, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm under the hood of my car to impress my wife and my daughters <laughs> because that's what men do. I'm trying to look smart, but I have no clue what I'm doing. There's green stuff leaking out. Help. Okay? What? Render? What is God saying? When you understand that you're in the church and you're the body of Christ, and the only way that you can really be effective is if you learn from God, He teaches you how to live in the context of church life, then you come to Him saying, God, I need your help. I want to be holy. I want to be useful to you. I want to know what it is to be so filled with your spirit that I experience victory over sin, but I can't do it. If you think you're wise, what is Paul saying? Become a fool. Become a fool. 
come to God on bended knee saying, God, I would love to be effective. Folks, as a church, we would come to God saying, God, please show us what you want us to be. Let us be fools so that we can learn. We acknowledge, here's what I am. I am ignorant, God. And I need your help to become what you want me to be. And then, I just let me just touch base on verse 21, the other part of this humility. Notice what Paul says. And this becomes the conclusion to what started back in chapter 1. Remember when he said, oh, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Remember that division, that stripe that was present in the church? Paul's looking at them saying that you're the temple of God. He's finally coming around to that point. He says, so then, no more boasting about men. Why? We should all be learners. We should have an attitude of humility as we come. And as we relate to each other. And, and, and it's the pettiness of having favorites that Paul just goes after here. He says, everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas. Why would you say, Paul's my man, when God has given you all three for your benefit? You see what he's saying? Have foolish divisiveness and personality-centered things become? God's given you each other to build each other up. Why would you want to claim this person or that person when God has given you everything? And then notice how this thought just takes Paul out into more glorious things. No more boasting about men. Everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas. And then he quantum leap. Paul, Apollos, Kephas. I mean, good night. He's saying the world is yours. God owns it all. You're his children. And then he goes even further into the eternal realm or life or death. You own victory over death in Christ and his indwelling presence. You see what he's saying? Or things present or things in the future. All of those are yours. You are of Christ and Christ is of God. Folks, when, when, you, when you realize all of the glory of heaven that God has already purchased and guaranteed for us as his children, how can you be proud? How can we be proud and divisive in the body that he purchased with his blood? <clears throat> How? See what he's saying? Humility is the attitude that promotes unity in the church. Why? Because we all together have all of God's gifts. We together have the hope of heaven. We have victory over death. We have victory in life. That's what he's saying. You have Paul and Apollos and Kephas. Don't pick one. You've got all of that and the earth. It's all God's. It's all God's. Folks, may we fall humbly before the Savior. May we say together, we are the temple of the living God. His church where He chooses to dwell. We have so much together in Him. Let's not be divided. Let's be unified. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, if you get Christ, you get everything. If you have Jesus, you have everything. And if you don't know Him this morning, I just want to tell you this very briefly. There is a Savior who died on the cross to pay the price for your sin. Who wants to take a personal residence in your life if you come to Him believing, saying, Lord, I want you to save me. Be my Savior. And change my life. Jonathan Edwards said of this humbling work of God in our lives. He said, nothing gets a man so out of the devil's reach as does humility.
You're the temple of God. Let that shock you. Let that humble you. Let that cause you to realize that living in God's house, you have every, everything that's his belongs to you. You are joint heirs with Christ. No divisions, no strife. Love one another. Be the church. Be the living presence of God, his salt and light in this community. And let nothing get in the way of that. Let's bow our heads this morning.